Well, here we are. We have made it to the end of our series in the Minor Prophets. This is the last week of that series, and so we're going to be looking this morning at the last of the Minor Prophets, Malachi. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'll catch up with you in a minute. I'm really excited today about looking at Malachi. I'm sad to see the series end, but man, I think we're going to end with a bang here in Malachi. Malachi may be the last, but he is not the least of these prophets. So as you're turning to Malachi this morning, let me give you a little bit of context about Malachi because I think it's really going to help us understand uh, the message that God is going to be sharing to his people through this little book. Uh, see, all through this series, we've kind of talked about a specific point in time in the history of the nation of Israel. Israel had come to the point in their history where they had been divided in a civil war between the northern kingdom that was Israel, Ephraim, Syria, called those things, and the southern kingdom called Judah. Some of the minor prophets prophesied to the north, some prophesied to the south, but both the north and the south were guilty of sin before the Lord, and because of that, each were taken away into captivity. And most of the minor prophets focus on the sin of the people, the judgment of being taken into captivity, but Malachi is different. Malachi is written after the southern kingdom of Judah has come back from captivity and has come back into the land. Matter of fact, Malachi is written right about a hundred years after King Cyrus of Babylon issued a decree that allowed the nation of Israel to go back home. And so uh, they go back home and the temple has been reopened. They start making sacrifices, but the land wasn't all that they remembered. It wasn't a land flowing with milk and honey anymore. They had economic hardships. They had drought, famine, and pestilence. It was a hard life for those people. And that's the backdrop that Malachi writes against. But something else interesting about Malachi is Malachi himself. And that is, we just don't know anything about Malachi really. We don't know much about who he was or what he did. And to be honest, we may not even know Malachi's name. You're saying, Chip, don't be stupid. His name's Malachi. Not necessarily. The name Malachi is a literal translation of Hebrew, meaning my messenger. And so when God says this is the word of the Lord through Malachi, that could very easily be the word of the Lord through my messenger. Matter of fact, I think that Malachi was a pseudonym for whoever wrote this book. Why? Because who he was wasn't important. It was the message that was important. And what we see is we see the message of Malachi play out through a series of seven different questions. Now, when you think questions, don't think, wow, they didn't understand. They had a hard time, so they asked for an explanation. Not that. It wasn't that kind of question that seeks to understand better, to learn more. It's the kind of question that is meant to avoid an answer. It's the kind of question that's meant to justify ourselves. And in some way, the people ask questions of God in a way to belittle God. A good example of this is if you've ever been talking to somebody and they say something and you reply with the question, what in the world are you talking about? That's a question, but it isn't a question really looking for an answer. It's a question meant to make a point. And that's really the kind of question that the people are going to ask God in the book of Malachi. God is going to say something and the people are going to respond, God, what in the world are you talking about? 
Now, for our time together this morning, we're not going to specifically look at each of these seven individual questions, but we're going to look at the flow of these questions seen in my mind in four big questions and really see if we can understand what's going on in Malachi between God and His people and help us understand their relationship so that we can better understand our relationship with God today. So if you're ready, we're going to jump in. We're going to start in Malachi chapter 1 where we're going to see the very first question and that's the question when the people ask God, How have you loved us? Let's start reading in Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackal. So here, the book of Malachi begins different than really any of the other minor prophets we've seen because it begins with God telling the people, I have loved you. And yet the people respond, what in the world do you mean? How have you loved us? Now I know that seems like a lame question to ask God, right? Who would dare ask God, how have you loved us? But as we've seen throughout the other minor prophets, sometimes it can be really difficult to see and to feel God's love especially when we're focused on the circumstances around us. This is what Warren Wearsby, the author, says. He says, Doubting God's love is the beginning of unbelief and disobedience. Eve doubted God's love and ate of the forbidden tree. She thought God was holding out on her. Satan wants us to feel neglected by God. Look at your difficult circumstances, he said to the Jewish remnant. Where are the crops? Why doesn't your God take care of you? And that was a question that was on their mind, right? Because yes, they had come back to the land, but they were having a hard time. Their crops were failing. It wasn't raining. There was pestilence in the land. And even though they were freed from Babylonian captivity, they weren't freed from Babylonian control. The Babylonian government still had their thumb on the nation of Israel. So they didn't feel really loved at that moment. And when they ask the question, God, how have you loved us? Absolutely, they're being defiant. Absolutely, they're asserting their own self-righteousness. But I think under that, you can see a really real sense of hurt. God, why is this happening? How have you loved us? And I think it's that hurt that's underneath that question that makes God's answer to them even more pointed. And the way he answers them again, seems really weird. His answer seems something like this. I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And if you have no context for that answer, that doesn't seem like an answer at all, but it's a really powerful answer when you understand what he's talking about. You see, Jacob and Esau were two brothers. They were sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the entire Jewish nation. Well, God looks at these two sons, Jacob and Esau, and he chooses Jacob. And here's why that's so important. Because Esau was the older brother. Esau was the one who deserved the birthright, the favor, the blessing. Esau was the one who deserved the land and the inheritance, and yet... God chose Jacob. 
God chose Jacob to give 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. He, he chose Jacob to be the one to inherit the land. He chose Jacob to be the one who blessed. And really, man, that rattles our sense of justice, doesn't it? God, that's, that's not fair. Why did you choose Jacob over Esau? And, and to be honest, the more you learn about Jacob, it rattles your fairness even more because you might want to excuse it by saying, well, Jacob was the better person. Not really. Jacob's name in and of itself, Jacob's name means deceiver. If you look at Jacob's early life, he was a cheat. He was a manipulator. He was a mama's boy. And yet, God chose him. And so that's the point. That's the answer to the question, how have you loved us? God says, don't forget, I chose Jacob. I chose Jacob and his descendants, that is you, to set my favor on, to bring my blessing on him. I chose him to give an inheritance. I chose him to give the land. And if God had chosen Jacob, nothing had changed that. God had chosen to set his love and affection on his people and the circumstances, the temporary circumstances that they were experiencing did not change that at all. So what we need to hear is that God's love for Jacob, God's love for Israel, God's love for you is His choice. Nobody made Him. Nobody forced Him. You didn't make God love you by being so lovable. Matter of fact, we were probably less lovable than Jacob. But God loves us by His choice. And once He's made that choice, He's committed to it. Don't ever let the circumstances of your life tell you otherwise. Just because you don't feel God's love at the moment doesn't mean God has changed his mind. He has chosen to love you. Second question, what's wrong with our worship? Now, that seems weird again, right? Let's give a little context. God has made his love to the people plain. I loved you. How have you loved us? Listen, I've loved you from the beginning and I've not stopped. But now that he's made that love plain, he brings up an issue that he has with the people. Namely, God says that they have despised and defiled him through their worship. Let's pick up reading in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. This is what it says. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, here's a question, how have we despised your name? God's answer, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? God says, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible. And then he gets really specific. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. Now again, you got to understand the context of what's happening here because this is a big, big deal. The temple had been reopened and they had begun to offer sacrifices, but the sacrifices they were offering did not meet the standard for sacrifice that God had established years before. The priest and the people had despised and defiled the altar by offering sacrifices that were defiled. They were lame. 
They were blind. They were sick. They weren't the best of the best. See, the specifications in Leviticus were that you bring your first, you bring your best, you bring something unblemished and unspotted. That's what you give as a sacrifice. And here God says, that's not what you're doing anymore. Now the point here is that this is God revealing the hearts of the people. This whole section of sacrifice points to the heart issue that Malachi is addressing. See, the religion of the people had become routine. Their hearts were no longer in it. They were just going through the motions of sacrifice and never really offering a sacrifice. So when they say, what's wrong with our our worship? God says, you're not worshiping. You're just going through the motions and checking boxes. This is how one commentator put it. He said, Malachi's contemporaries may have been relatively orthodox in their beliefs and free from blatant idolatry, but theirs had become a dead orthodoxy. Their heart just wasn't in it. They were doing the right things, but their heart wasn't in it. And so the Lord presses them even further because the question, they they don't see the issue in that. How have we despised you? How have we defiled you? They don't see the issue. So God presses it even further to show them, hey, if you don't think this is an issue, take that lame, take that blind, take that sick lamb and go offer it to your governor and see how he feels about it. Because, hey, that'd be an insult to the Babylonians, right? So here, here, the point is, look, you're offering to God what you wouldn't even offer to a government official. And here's the thing. If that seems ridiculous to you, you need to tread really carefully. Because far too often, we do not give God the place and the priority in our life that He rightly deserves. Like the Israel, uh, the Israelites who offered sacrifices that were convenient to them, we offer God what is convenient to us and try to fit Him in where we can throughout the week. Now, I, I want to be clear here, especially because I know you're watching this online. What I'm not saying is that you've got to walk through the doors of a church building three times a week and volunteer in five different ministries to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus Christ has freed us from the burden of religion and the law. But, and it's a big but, if we are going to be gut-level honest with ourselves, we need to come to the place that we admit that God does not have a place of priority in our lives anymore. What we offer Him by way of our time, our energy, our resources, and our affection is what we have left over. It's not a priority. Think about it like this. Let's say your kid plays travel ball. What would you do if you told you, how would your travel ball coach respond if you said, hey, we'll come to practice when we can fit it in? Like, how would he respond? Do you think you'd have a spot on the team still? Now, listen, listen to me. Hear my heart here. I don't believe 
any of the people or any of the priests in Malachi's day started out intending to offer blind, lame, and sick animals as their sacrifice. I'm sure they had really good intentions, but they ended up there because their hearts had moved away from the Lord. He had ceased to be a real priority in their lives. Look, you can only offer your best when you offer it first. When it's not a priority, God just gets what's left over. Whether that be the lame and sick lambs or the tired, run-down moments of our week. And before we start telling ourselves, God understands. He knows how busy I am. He gets it. I want you to see what God Himself said about these half-hearted motions. Look at what He says in verse 10 of chapter 1. God says, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will not, I will accept no offering from your hands. God says, if you can't give me your best, just shut the doors. This is a serious thing. This is not a, oh, well, it'll get better. No, this is serious. This is a charge against the Lord. Look at me. God does not deserve second best and He will not tolerate or settle for it. Half-hearted worship is not worship. When you look at what worship is, worship is the means by which we ascribe the value and worthiness of the thing that we are worshiping. And half-hearted worship just undermines that. There is no such thing as half-hearted worship. You worship what you give priority to. You worship what you give the first and the best to. True worship isn't born by what's convenient. True worship comes from your conviction. And God says you've lost it. You're giving me what's left over. You're just going through the motions. I don't have the place in your life that I should. And so then, the question naturally becomes, well, how can we get back? How can we return? After this searing indictment of God saying, I wish you would just shut the temple down, the people say, well, how can we get back to the right place? How do we fix this? How do we return to you? Look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, Since the days of your ancestors you have turned from my statutes. This isn't anything new. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? And then God asks a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. <laughs> so this is where it, it kind of gets crazy if you don't really understand what God's saying. So just to get it out there and be clear, God's answer is, how can we return is stop robbing me. They say, well, how are we robbing you? He says, by not tithing. So when they say, how do we return to you? God says, you need to start tithing again. Now, I can almost hear somebody out there right now. You're watching in your home on your phone and you're saying, I knew it, that's why I don't go to church. I was going to check this one out, but I knew it. Every church is the same. Every church is all about money. Churches just want money. Hey, that ain't it, chief. 
hear me out for just a minute, okay? Now, yes, the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about finances and giving generously with our finances a lot. But here's the reason why. Jesus knows just how much your heart is tied to your wallet. And he knows that if he don't get access to your wallet, he don't have access to your heart. This isn't about how much money God can get from you. It's about making sure that he has your heart because if he doesn't have access to your bank account, he doesn't have access to your heart. See, money isn't the point. Obedience is the point, right? That's what he said there in verse 7. If you go back and look, he says, Since the days of my ancestors, you have turned from my statutes, my laws. You have not kept them. So, so here's what God is saying. God is saying, look, you know how to return to me. You're just not doing it just like how you know that you should be tithing and you're just not doing it. And this idea of obedience, this is true for almost every single one of us. We know way more Bible than we actually obey. And without being obedient in those simplest of areas that we plainly know, how can we honestly say that we want to return? Do you see how God is revealing their hearts to them? They say, oh God, we want to return. And God says, no you don't. Because if you did, you would do this simple, plain, obvious, and easy thing. But you're not doing this, so I know you really don't want this. That's the tension in our hearts. We know what to do. We know what we should do. We know the things that are out there that we are not doing. And God absolutely nails us to the wall. He reveals our hearts. The question that we're really asking, the question underneath all of this is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I think that's the question at the heart of Malachi. Is it worth it? The people ask this question, is it worth it? Not specifically, not verbatim. It's really the question under the question, and we can see it clearly twice in the book. The first one is back in chapter 2, verse 17. Let me read it to you. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? You don't want to know how? This is how. When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? The, the question that they're asking literally right here is how has we wearied the Lord? But the answer that God gives shows us that the question really is, is it worth it? See, they wearied the Lord by not trusting Him to keep His word. They wearied the Lord by saying it's not worth it to be obedient because God blesses those who are disobedient. They saw people who were being evil and yet blessed and said, well, it must not be worth it to have to do these things that God says because even if we don't, we can be blessed like those people. It's not worth it. Again, they asked the same type of question at the end of chapter 3, verse 13. God says, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said... 
It is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping His requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. And so I think it's pretty obvious here that this is like the same question they ask in 2.17. They're just more bold and more blunt about it. They point blank say, it is useless to follow God. It's not worth it. And man, that's, that's the question that we're all wrestling with right now. As you're sitting you know, at your desk, at your house, in Panera, Starbucks, whatever, listening to this, the question you're asking yourself is, is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live this way? Is it worth it for you to reorganize your life, your schedule, your finances, just to make Jesus a priority? Is it worth it for you to lay down your preferences, to lay down your free time, to lay down your desires to uh, for the sake of the mission and the good of the lost? Is it worth it? And the more I've thought about that this week, maybe that's even the wrong question. It's the question they were asking, no doubt. And I think that they had pretty much answered it's not worth it. And that's the question that many of us are wrestling with right now, is it worth it? But I still think it may be the wrong question. Maybe the question we should be asking is not is it worth it, but is He worth it? Is God worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it to you to change the way you're living because it's Him who's asking you to live that way? Is Jesus worth being more than just a convenience for you? Is Jesus worth more to you than just what's left of you at the end of the week? Is Jesus worth laying everything down for? And I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, He is. He absolutely is. He is worth it. And now here's the dangerous truth that we end the series with. Some of you are going to say, Amen, Chip. You may even be typing it in the keyboard right now. Stop. Some of you say He is, but nothing in your life is really going to change to reflect that. You're going to say He's worth it, but you're not going to change the way you live. You're going to say He's worth it, but He's still going to get your leftovers when you find it convenient. You're going to say He's worth it, but you're going to fight to cling to your preferences over the souls of the lost. You say He's worth it, but nothing's really going to change. But there will be some. There will be some who say, man, He really is worth it. And Maybe you see the worthiness of Jesus for the very first time, and as you see the worthiness of Jesus, you're going to be transformed by it. There's going to be many who say He is, but their actions show He's not. But there will be some who see it and are changed by it. And we even see this play out in Malachi with the nation of Israel. After everything that Malachi says, after everything the Lord says through Malachi, indictment after indictment, Malachi reminds us that in the midst of this religiously dead people, there was a faithful group who remained. Look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They took notice and listened. 
So a book of remembrance was written before Him, that's the Lord, for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for His name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. And look at this. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. I love that. I love that there are going to be some who hear, some who are changed. And I love that God says, you will see the difference. Not that you will hear the difference, but you will see the difference because it is obvious when the Lord's people stop going through the motions. It is obvious when He captures their heart completely. It is obvious when they are seeking to show the worthiness of the Lord through their sacrifice and through their obedience. They see that the Lord is worth it. And so one thing I want you to hear as we end this series is that no matter what is going on, the Lord is always going to preserve His people. He sees them and He sustains them. Even in this pitiful state of the nation restored to the land, where religion had become dead, sacrifices had become defiled, the hearts had moved away from God and the people said, it's just not worth it anymore. God's love endured. And 400 years later, He would send His Son into the world to seek and save those whose hearts had turned far from Him. So if you hear anything from Malachi, yes, ask yourself, is He worth it? But then secondly, remember that His love endures even when you say He's not. The Lord's love will not be stopped. God will be faithful. His love endures even in spite of us. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would see the worthiness of the Lord and be changed by it, that your worship and your relationship would be reignited and renewed, and that if it's not, that the Lord's love would endure, that He would continue to seek you down, that He would continue to seek you out, and that at the point that you realize where you have fallen from and how cold your heart has been, that because His love endures, you would cry out to Him and be saved. So that's what I'm going to pray for you now, is that your heart right now would be reignited, but if it's not, that His love would continue to endure until the day that it is. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the time together this morning and this challenging little book of Malachi. God, I pray that you would convict us over where we have grown cold in our love for you and our relationship with you. God, that you would convict us where you have just become less than the priority you should be and you've begun to get the leftovers in our life. God, I pray that your love would transform us and reignite us. And God, I pray that those hearts that still remain cold, that your love would endure and that they one day, because of your enduring love in their life, would turn their hearts towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.